Hello and welcome to the Beijing to Britain podcast with your co-hosts Sam Hogg and Steve Lynch. We aim to examine and interrogate information in the UK-China bilateral, speaking to key policymakers, thinkers, and individuals in this space. In each episode, we'll discuss the recent events, activities, and happenings between the UK and China, what that means, and what's going on with some experts, as well as look at some parliamentary output. Happy birthday to Sam. Okay, that's enough. Happy birthday to Sam. (laughs) It's a special birthday episode with Sam Hogg and Steve Lynch. Yeah, well, there you go. As if the suffering couldn't go on anymore. It's my 20th birthday yesterday, 28 years of age. Exciting, exciting, Sam. So I think we've got quite a few events that we're going to talk about this week. So I've just come back from the CBI, Confederation of British Industries, annual conference. They haven't done it in a few years. A uh, combination of COVID and internal issues, uh, which you can look into. Uh, but essentially, this is their relanding, right? They're, as, as they're calling it, they're finding their voice again. I suppose general takeaways, it was very generic. Big focus on business culture, internal business culture. Again, look into their problems. There was very little on international business or international policy. And maybe, obviously, um, because it's a, it's a domestic conference that we've kind of spoken about before. A lot of this is internal. But I found a couple of things really interesting. One, their headline speech or headline keynote speech was Jonathan Reynolds, who's the MP or the shadow business secretary for Labour. Mm. And Jeremy Hunt was essentially at the end of the day. He didn't say a lot because his autumn statement's coming in two days. So he didn't say much. What I thought was really important, there needs to be a stronger connection between business and government. I think that's absolutely paramount that they're working together, Mm. uh, whether it be domestic uh, business environment or international business. And this is so important when we talk about China. Just quickly getting into the Jonathan Reynolds speech, I thought it was really interesting because he said, we are the undisputed party of business. And he made that point very, very, very clear. Um, I suppose, what did he say? He He outlined incredible policy to a room filled of businessmen. Mm. You know, they're CEOs and he said exactly what they wanted to hear. And I was thinking if he can do half of this, you know, sign me up. I've, you know, that, that is brilliant. That's what we want. That's what we need as a country, pro growth, uh, pro engagement with, with business. But I suppose the question does come back down to what's the meat on the bones. And an example I will give of this is he really pushed on the building Uh, planning regulations. And he said, we're going to bulldoze these planning regulations. And essentially, this is national interest versus local concerns, Mm. which is nimbyism, right? So I want to build, I want you to build and I want you to develop in this country, but not in my patch, not in my backyard. And the question was, you know, how do we overcome this? And essentially, he said, courage, we need more courage as as a country. And I thought, that's great. I do believe in that as well. It's a bigger argument. But what's the policy? Mm. And I think that's a little bit of the issue with Labour at the moment. And this ties directly into our UK-China conversation is what is the policy of Labour? So I want to take us back a week. You went to a Jonathan Reynolds event, (laughs) which was also about China policy and it was around securonomics. So kind of maybe you give me an insight into the, the conference you went to. Yeah, so just to create the record, I was not intentionally invited to a Reynolds uh, speech. I was knocking about Canary Wharf, admiring the architecture. And it so happened that Reynolds was giving a speech in one of the buildings there. But you're absolutely right. His, his, his speech is basically, they're trying to set the pitch for what a Labour government's policy would look like on business and trade. 
right? So many of the overlapping things you would have heard today, Steve, I heard last week, with the exception, which it may have come up today, but with the exception last week of a section on China. And so basically the Labour Party, they say that the Conservative Party, the government, has gone after these random free trade agreements for no particular reason other than just to say we have signed an FTA with X country, Y country, Z country post-Brexit. Look how much of a success we're making out of Brexit. And for them, they argue this has no strategic coherency at all. They then tied that into what the Labour's approach to China look like on the business front of it. And interestingly, they were very clear. I think the specific quote was, which I'm going to paraphrase, was, we cannot treat Chinese investment like any other investment, which is not going to be what some companies want to hear, but is very indicative as to where Labour's thinking is. And that comes back to the point you've just said there, Steve. They have this thing called Securonomics. Securonomics, like any good slogan, you know, make America great again, common prosperity, get Brexit done, allows you to dovetail anything you want under it. You know, Steve, you and I can say, we are going to get an expense 15 beers tomorrow night because it's part of our strategy to do a chin wag, a part of, you know, securonomic strategy to make sure that we are a security focused business, pushing the country forward, yada, yada, yada. So they have this thing called securonomics, which in my personal opinion, not a terrible idea at all. And it was put forward by Shadow Chancellor Rachel Reeves way back in this year in, in Washington. It's very influenced by the Americans Inflation Reduction Act, the IRA. Again, an often overlooked thing is that a number of Labour's shadow frontbench have been flown to America over the last year to meet with American senators and meet with American officials, including high-ranking security officials. And they've come back and they started to form this, this principle. So what, what Reynolds was saying there was, look, we're going to take a, an approach to business and to industrial strategies that combines government acting alongside. We, we want the business to sort of feed into this effectively. How that manifests itself will be very interesting because a, a bit like with the, you know, we need courage comment, that's that's well and good, but you need to actually show what parts you want business to engage in. And the flip side of that coin, by the way, and not discussed really again in the context of the speech is if parliament sees that you are, in their words, like cozying up to business on China issues, and all of a sudden your criticism of Xinjiang falls off the radar or Hong Kong falls off the radar, they will draw a direct you know, line from you've asked for business feedback to all of a sudden you've stopped advocating for any human rights concerns. And again, that might be a particularly uh, black and white distinction, but I suspect that's something that Labour needs to factor in slightly more when it comes to the business angle of their securonomics. Does this not just sound like protectionism? Sam, and is that a concern? It does sound like protectionism. And because a lot of these ideas are quite embryonic and they've not had to develop the huge, hugely at this stage, they're still almost what you would spit around in like a brainstorming session. It's quite hard to see how Labour isn't being protectionist in its approach towards this stuff. Now, they would say that for too often, for too long, the government has tried to sort of allow the free hand to guide the private sector and to guide our national interests at the cost of our like critical sectors. So they would point to stuff like Chinese investment in nuclear, Chinese investment in telecoms, and say that is a clear no-brainer of where there should not have been Chinese investment, which we see differently in security-concerned uh, areas as such. Now, we're clearly not the United States. Protectionism won't work in the same way that it works or might work in the US. And so it'll be difficult to see how they push that forward. But again, it's not set in cement yet. They'll be um, speaking to loads of businesses, many of whom you and I will be speaking to as well, Steve. And again, there's there's a reason why 
the most common question that we, you know, you and I are asked is, what is Labour's approach in this looking like? The people I've met from Labour side are, are, I'm very encouraged by. I think they are thinking a lot about the sort of stuff. So I'm not too sceptical yet or too uh, put out by it, but it is worth having on the radar. And I guess if I could flip the question back to you or a question back to you, Steve, you've obviously spent a lot of your life working with huge businesses uh, that have a UK and China footprint. What do you think if you were a CEO of a sort of FTSE 100 or FTSE 250 company right now that had a footprint in each, what would your major concerns be about uh, a potential Labour government getting in, in contrast to where you currently would be sitting with the Conservative government? I suppose it's a concern of just following US policy. You know, you mentioned it there that, you know, a lot of the front bench have been out uh, and I imagine a lot of think tanks, you know, political advisors have been out speaking to the Americans around securonomics. And it also seems like this is a bit of a, not retaliation, but this is a reflection of what's just happened in America in regards to the Inflation Reduction Act and how the UK responds to this. So if I was a business leader, I'd be want to be making sure that I am being consulted. Fundamentally, businesses need certainty. And there has been very little certainty in the last few years. Let's just call it post-Brexit. We don't know. It's you know revolving door of policy. We, we've, we've called that before. So I think if we are going to, if Labour seems to be following a securonomics model, which seems to be influenced from the US, then it needs to be consulted with business because, as you've mentioned from the outside, we are not the US. And post-Brexit, we are a very different country to what we were in regards to our standing in the world, um, our standing with the European Union and et cetera. And that's not trying to make a political point. That is just fact-based. So I think if I was a business leader, I'd really want to be consulted on a lot of this, how this impacts my business, how this impacts my global business as well, because there's a difference between domestic and international. So for me, it's, it's making sure that there's certainty, both inbound for foreign direct investment into the UK, and if I was a foreign business, dealing with China. That do they really understand what they're they're talking about, and we're not just following a U.S. geopolitical model? Yeah, it's it's interesting because in Reynolds' speech last week, he promised that Labour would publish a trade white paper specifically crafted with input from business, which will, and I quote, be connected to our industrial and foreign objectives. Quote ends. So I, I do think there's an acknowledgement from Labour that they want that in the system, and as from everything I've seen so far they are being quite proactive and quite receptive to businesses engaging with them on that. Where I think, you know, from, from your and I point of view, Steve, because obviously we deal with both the uh, business side and the political side, where I think there's going to be a potential sticking point for them is if there is the view among activist groups in parliament and China hawks in parliament from both parties or basically anyone uh, in Westminster, that Labour is going to sort of quote unquote pro-business in its approach to China and doing what was often characterized in the golden era as, you know, putting money over human rights or economics over values, then that is going to be seriously difficult for them because this is a party which voted unanimously to declare that genocide is taking place in Xinjiang in parliament a couple of years ago. And they may well now say, oh, well, things have changed or blah, blah, blah. That's, that's, that is on record as their view as a party. This is a party that has uh, explicitly said so far in its communications that it's going to recognize genocide when it gets in and, or, or work with international partners to punish the perpetrators of that genocide. And this is a party that's also committed to doing a UK-China audit of various sectors as yet unnamed and unknown uh, with unshared, let's say, uh, characterization of what risk is. So 
they've got this almost before getting into government, and this is obviously they do get into government, they've got all these different things lined up, which are going to work in, in a series of contradictions almost. Actually, it's very Chinese in that sense, you know, to have a, <laughs> a series of contradictions. These juxtapositions, your... yeah. yeah. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, another irony of our, of our bilateral. But it, yeah, it's fascinating. It really is. And, and mm. I think also, you know, um, we were discussing this the other day, Steve, the, the thing that throws everything we've just discussed out the window is the, uh, in our view, I would say, very likely return of, of Donald Trump next year. You can have the world's best laid plans, but when the Donald punches you in the face, you're going to forget them. And that's the hard part, I think, for the, for the UK government, whoever the party is in charge. I think that's a boxing quote that's been reworked. So I love that. <laughs> Everyone has a plan until the Donald punches you in the face. Yeah, exactly. Um, so, Sam, last week we had uh, quite a bit of feedback that we were far too political uh, based on the Cameron emergency news. So let's get straight back into the politics, which <laughs> is C. Biden. They had a face to face. The two most important geopolitical powers met. And mm. when I say that, um, President Xi was over in the US at the APEC summit and there was a sit down meeting between Biden and Xi. So let's hear from them directly. Mr. President, we know each other for a long time. We haven't always agreed, which was not surprised anyone. But our meetings have always been candid, straightforward, and useful. I've never doubted what you've told me in terms of your candid nature in which you speak. I value our conversation because I think it's paramount that you and I understand each other clearly, leader to leader, with no misconceptions or miscommunication. The China-U.S. relationship, which is the most important bilateral relationship in the world, should be perceived and envisioned in a broad context of the, of the accelerating global transformations unseen in a century. It should develop in a way that benefits our two peoples and fulfills our responsibility for human progress. You must have done your fair share of these sort of things and, and worked with various officials when they arrived. What, sit-down meetings between Biden and Xi? You'll <laughs> yeah, be surprised, yeah, yeah. Sam. <laughs> yeah. The British Chamber didn't host any of those. I cannot believe you lied, you lied on your CV like that when you applied for this job. <laughs> um, well, what, my point is more, actually, in terms of you've obviously organized a number of these different visits, not between Biden and Xi, but for various officials. What was your read of, of how successful that was? And do you think both sides have walked away having achieved what they sort of wanted to achieve from that? I suppose, yes, I think they did. I think this is not just talk. I know a lot of people presented it. It was just talk. It was just four hours. It was very pleasant. I think this is a big deal. It's a really important meeting. Uh, we can see that from kind of like how China's, you know, has been reported in China. It's gone well. It's gone very well. Mm. There's no mention of, of Xi being a dictator, uh, but this is toning down a rhetoric. I think when we, you know, compare and contrast where we were at the beginning of the year, let's just say 2023, China's just coming out of COVID. It's in a complete mess. Let's be completely honest. Mm. The US just shot down the the spy balloon or high altitude weather balloon, whatever we want to call it, you know, and there's just been a continuous tit for tat in uh, rhetoric, but then also ramping up of military engagement, you know, around Taiwan. So I think it's a really big deal. I do not think it's a reset. I don't yep. think, you know, that that can be done in one meeting, but it's a toning down of rhetoric. And let's be completely transparent. It's a toning down of rhetoric around a war. Um, I think, I still think there's massive mixed messages coming out from both sides. Um, I think let's just get into it, right? So the, the big story, which kind of maybe Western media like to pick up on was <laughs> she was called a, a dictator. That mm. definitely wasn't picked up in the, in, the, in the Chinese media. But a couple of the factual things that came out, 
stronger commitments around climate change. That's really important. I know that just sounds quite wishy-washy, but that there was actually quite strong commitments in that in the meeting. Restarting military collaboration and communication, mm. again, quite a big deal when we're talking about Taiwan, tackling the fentanyl crisis. It's not something I can pretend to know about from, from sitting here in the UK, but apparently it is a crisis in the US. The big one for me, and this is maybe my background, was the standing ovation that she got uh, at the US-China Business Leaders Summit. And I, I think that's pretty amazing, right? Business leaders standing up and, and clapping and cheering the Chinese president. You know, she said, you know, China, uh, you know, China needs the US and the US needs China. We need to work together. You know, let's be honest, China's economy is not great. There's been a show it's slowing down of, you know, it's been slowing down in the economy. There's been a lot of concerns around FDI pulling out. Um, so she has a big job of convincing big business, big American business to kind of keep the faith, stay in, you know, stay in China. I don't know if that worked. Um, I think he's certainly got his work cut out, but this was a strong statement to do that. Yeah. So actually, I have to disagree with you on one point. I I think the CEO's standing and clapping, she is, I find it, demoralizing is the wrong word. I think it shows for me, quite often what you see, I think, in elites around any society is that they are insulated from a lot of geopolitics because they, they're just very wealthy, which is absolutely fine, but it also means they don't tend to operate on the same level uh, as, as the rest of their, their respective societies do. So I think that's an interesting uh, thing, which I'm not sure whether I'm positive or ambivalent or negative about personally. I'm just trying to work it out. But the other stuff I very much agree with you on, and the climate change one especially, we've discussed this before, but when we have people like our Indo-Pacific minister, Anne-Marie Trevelyan, and goes around the Indo-Pacific and speaks to these Pacific Islanders, funnily enough, the first thing on their agenda isn't like, oh, please, you know, talk, go, go, go into a sort of cold war or whatever. It's, we are desperate for help on climate change this is not an abstract thing for us this is happening right now and we are suffering as a result of it we're experiencing droughts flooding whatever it is so i think anytime the world's two great superpowers get together and make even the most incremental but in this case not incremental bit of concrete policy around that that is a net benefit for a lot of people i, I completely agree that's a very good thing now to your second point uh, about what the uk makes of it all and um, where we sort of sit in that it's a funny one because I actually don't think many people pick up on these sort of things anymore. I mean, obviously, you'll see like MPs fire off a tweet or they'll retweet a, a Sky News headline or whatever. But I, I haven't seen that much discussion in Parliament around the visit. And I haven't seen that many people convinced either way that it's going to change how we in the UK, what our direction of travel looks like. And I think, I think you know, to go back to what we said right, right at the beginning... Right now, we're in a very inward-looking phase in the UK's life because we're at the end of 13 years of, of one particular political party. We've had about 400 prime ministers during the course of this podcast being recorded. Like, this is not a, a time of stability. And that means... There's a really interesting quote I read the other day, which I'm going to paraphrase, but foreign policy is like when countries can, when countries are confident, they can have an engaged foreign policy because they're confident at home and therefore they can project themselves with confidence abroad. I butchered that quote and I apologize to whoever that was who gave it to me, but that's that's absolutely true. So I think the UK was very inward looking during the visit and you know we've got our own state visit going on right now as well. If you've been walking around London, you may well see beautiful uh, South Korean flags everywhere because we've got the South Korean president in town, who I think is delivering a speech tomorrow. So the president, the South Korean president's here for four days. Why it is important to this podcast and it is important to flag is because what they're going to be looking for is deeper cooperations around geopolitical risks. Now, where does 
um, South Korea sit. It sits in the South China Sea. Um, and that is kind of going to be one of the big conversation topics for the next four days between the UK and South Korea. We don't know what's going to come out of it, but I think they're looking for more security um, assurances. And so I imagine that will be kind of a key point. And we, maybe we can dissect it next week. And just to add on to that, Steve, you're absolutely right. So this will be uh, security in the region will be really important. And then also we've got lots of different agreements with South Korea around technologies too. So quantum, all that sort of stuff too. We can expect to see... Uh, a litany of readouts and MOUs and that sort of stuff that Steve and I absolutely love to digest and go through. So we will discuss it a bit more next week. But uh, yeah, you know, the UK-China bilateral, obviously that's our bread and butter. But the great thing about this bilateral is that there's about a million and one different bilaterals on each side of it that overlap it and sort of dissect with it the whole time. South Korea being one, Japan another, obviously Australia, New Zealand, Canada, whatever it is, that's the exciting thing about this. And this for us is like a sort of tangible chance to see what we do <laughs> as we walk around London. You know, it's always great. I love this sort of stuff. I think one more final uh, multilateral point, which I think we should get into, uh, and this relates to Lord Cameron. So the UK released its international development white paper. I'm not going to pretend that I've read the whole thing. It's about 150 pages, but I was desperately scrambling around to read uh, Cameron's forward and the exec summary before this podcast. And I think just a couple of interesting initial takeaways and uh, very happy for people to, to write in and correct me with their different takeaways. But I think there's a clear emphasis on lower income countries, and that's the poorest countries, conflict countries. And I think that's kind of appeased quite a lot of international development community. There's less mention of trade and investment, but you know I haven't gone through the whole thing. But the thing that really stood out for me was Lord Cameron, David Cameron's forward, where essentially he focuses on partnerships uh, and development around partnerships. We know David Cameron was opposed to the drop in GDP uh, from 0.7 to 0.5 um, around international development. But what I think is really interesting is this kind of ties back into the integrated review and it's all around partnerships. Um, and so the one thing I would love to know from that is when we're talking about partnerships as the UK, are we considering China as a partner? Now, maybe I have to read through the the white paper, but I think that's quite important. you know. And I think David Cameron flagged it, that it's, it's a key priority for the UK um, is around partnerships. Same as the integrated review, but does that involve China? I don't know. Well, I, I had a cursory read over parts of it in that I pressed control F, which means to search document and typed in China. And I came up with a section on China. And it's interesting because it absolutely taps onto your point, Steve. So one of the things they point out there is the China's Belt and Road Initiative. And they say this is China's approach to development. Uh, they list out the pros of it and also some of the criticisms around sort of debt trapping or lower ESG standards and stuff like that. And I would say that actually parts of it almost come across as quite confrontational. There's an acknowledgement from the from the British government that China's approach cannot be the only approach in the world and that they just need to work together, but actually parts of the approach aren't working out for developing countries. And also what's in there, uh, which filled my heart with a real terror, was for the person who did it, they accidentally spelt the Foreign Secretary James Cleverley's name wrong. They missed out the S in James. And I thought, you know what? How many times have you and I been there, Steve, where it's like, bollocks <laughs> don't, don't bring it up on a podcast yeah, yeah. good idea so. yeah so whoever you are i hope you're all no i'm joking I'm, we've all been there but it was interesting that 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 section on china is like a, a sort of box they've taken out of the main text to talk about china's development stuff too there's acknowledgement about the, the classic line of taking 800 million people out of poverty all that sort of stuff but you're right steve it, it doesn't answer specifically if the uk views china as a partner in which to tackle all these issues it's just like an acknowledgement that china has its own development model 
And, you know, I, I think the other thing to add to this as well is every single strategy you read from, I would say, six months ago till the, the general election has to be tested against, will this strategy be kept by the next government, whether that's a conservative government or a Labour government? And my view, and from what I've heard today on this, this document, is that there is very little in there that Labour would necessarily change themselves, which is a good thing, I think. I think that would seem to imply that it was made in consultation with and with feedback from a, a Labour Party, which is a good, fundamentally a good thing. Because there are some things that come out and you're like, brilliant, that's got, by the time I finish reading it, we'll have another government and they'll do their own thing. But I think there's a bit of consistency there. Obviously, Steve, we'll be monitoring throughout the rest of this week with the reaction to that, that paper that, that came out today on uh, development, the state visit from the South Korean president. We'll be monitoring a variety of things on the business end. I'm sure you'll be looking at the autumn statement and what's in there. And we can have a sort of debrief as the weekends about what could be relevant to the UK-China space. But just to say before we close out the podcast for this week, we are very excited to announce we've got a fairly uh, senior official coming on in the next couple of weeks. So if you have any questions about the UK-China bilateral that you would like to ask a British official working in this space, please do email them in. Uh, or whatever you listen to this on, uh, Substack, Spotify, or Apple, there should be a wee option just to type in a, a question. Steve, before we cut it off for the day, uh, obviously you come at this from a business angle. What's the one thing you would like to see in the autumn statement that you think would be important to the businesses that you speak to in this space? Courage. <laughs> Brilliant. I've got a job for you as a speechwriter, by the way. <laughs> uh, Steve, I'll speak to you next week. And thanks so much.